The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. It's good to be back with you guys. It really is. After a wonderful trip to Guatemala, uh, an amazing trip that I'm looking forward to sharing with you in a couple of weeks, and a, uh, a hectic but a very good time with, with my sending church in Indiana, it's good to be back to some degree of normalcy here with you in Crozet. All right, I know there's a couple of you thinking that I was never normal to begin with, but whatever level I had, it's good to be back at it. So when I was in Indiana, I had the privilege of demonstrating our Prezi software, or the stuff that we use for for visual presentation on the slides. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, it was kind of an evolution, uh, the the whole process of visual graphics at church. When I grew up, we had this awesome high-tech thing called a flannel graph. Everyone here familiar with flannel graphs? No, some of you, the kids are like, what's a flannel graph? Uh, and they always had the same stories. It was always the feeding of the 5,000 or uh, David and Goliath, but never anything like Ehud and Eglon or anything from the Song of Solomon. You know, it's just the, you'll get that later. But it was flannel graph. And then from there, we progressed to the wonderful overhead transparency. Wasn't that awesome? Especially the kind that you have to color in yourself and hope that you stay in the lines and then you can put it there and... And then from there, we moved to PowerPoint and clip art. And I know that Sarah's going to argue this, but she loves clip art. It makes her a day when she sees the cheesiest graphics put on display for the world to see. She's probably steaming right now. She hates clip art. And so then Photoshop come along, which let us get away from the clip art. But still, with PowerPoint, you're moving in this linear-style progression. You're going from, from one slide to the next to the next. And then there's Prezi, which just blew my mind. Because Prezi, what it lets you do is it lets you get away from a two-dimensional playing field, and you have this three-dimensional area that you can work with. And so you can zoom in and look at the text box or the graphic, or you can look at the graphic and then zoom into the graphic within the graphic and then zoom in even further. And so next thing you know, you've got this Inception-like thing going on, and, and I love Prezi. It blew my mind. And some of the people in Indiana had never seen it before, and, and they were excited about it. And I was always happy to pass along what it is that we're doing here, but... But it occurred to me that as we go through the book of Mark, we're kind of doing the same thing. So I told my community group this week that it's really easy for us to get in a hurry and just kind of PowerPoint our way through the text. We'll read something and then go to the next one and then go to the next one without really pausing to dive further into it. And so the way that Walt and I preach has really allowed us to do that. Instead of preaching one passage just to get to the next passage, just to get to the next passage, we, we stick around on a bite-sized chunk so that we can zoom into it and just try to really wrap our minds around some of what the Holy Spirit has to teach us. And I say some because I, I don't believe that on this side of eternity we're going to know the full entirety of God's revelation. But I do know that the deeper we dig, the more we find. And it's like that onion. You just keep peeling back layers. You're never going to find the center of it. But it's awesome because we're, we're able to, to paint this picture from way back here and then zoom into it. And along the way, we found some pretty cool stuff, right? I mean, we saw the feeding of the 5,000, which everyone's familiar with. Yeah, Jesus was demonstrating his divinity and, and feeding people. Ah, but if you stop PowerPoint and you start going a little deeper, you find that what Jesus is teaching is that the, the true sufficiency of life is found in him. That the true satisfaction is in Him. He has satisfied the Father's wrath. He satisfies the believer's requirements for holiness. We looked at Peter walking on the water, which if you PowerPoint it, it's about us being like Peter and having the faith to get out of the boat. But, but when you go deeper into it, you realize that the goal is not to get out of the boat. The goal is to have Jesus in your boat. 
Because the only way we can be obedient to God is through being united to God. And so we saw that the God who was once far from us is now united to us. And so going the way that we have is just really neat because it lets us take a look at something that on the surface might not seem that intriguing. It might not seem that fascinating, but I promise you, the deeper you go and the more you dig, the better it is. It's like Minecraft. If you keep digging, eventually you find diamonds. Am I connecting with anybody here? All right. Now all of the older people are like, what's Minecraft? All right. Pair up with each other. Discuss Minecraft and flannel graph. It's going to be a great afternoon. But it's no different for us today or next week because we're going to take a look at something that just on the surface, if you PowerPoint it, if you just zoom across it, it's so easy to miss some truly unique things. And here's where it matters, all right? Here's where it always matters. What happens if the Jesus that we're following isn't the Jesus of Scripture? What happens if the Christianity that we claim to be adherents to isn't the Christianity of Scripture? What happens if the God that we profess faith in isn't the God of Scripture? And so it's important that we take the time to really dive into things, to, to see what the truth really is, so that we don't PowerPoint this thing and walk out of here, patting ourselves on the back for thinking, okay, I understand this, I'm good to go, and, and just find out later that you totally missed the point of all of it. And you're like, well, Richard, that's, that's impossible. But is it? I mean, haven't we seen Jesus for the last three years explaining to the Pharisees that their view of God was completely wrong? And these are the Pharisees. All right, these are the guys who were known for their ability to keep the law, to attain their own degree of self-righteousness, and yet Jesus has spent three years saying, you guys are fools. You don't even know me. You don't know my Father. If you knew my Father, you'd know me. Didn't Jesus say that on that day many would say, Lord, Lord, but then Jesus would say, I, I never knew you? So yeah, I'd say it's possible to spend your life thinking that you've got what you think is the right understanding of God, of salvation, of hell, of Jesus, just to find out that you're really clueless. And so that's why we spend the time that we do digging into this thing instead of just PowerPointing over. So let's jump into Mark chapter 11. After three years of compassionate, grueling, back-breaking, agonizing, soul-crushing ministry, it's time. It's time. It's time for things to come to a head. Three times Jesus prophesied about his death, burial, and resurrection, and now it's time for prophecy to become history. But a few things have got to happen first. Let me say up front, let me just throw out this little disclaimer. All right, nailing down chronological perfection 2,000 years after the events is kind of tough. I mean, if you dig deeply enough, you'll find that there is a plethora of debate on what happened on what day and, and who did what where and in what village and what time, especially concerning the final events of this last week of Jesus' life culminating in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so if I teach something this week or next week or in the course of the next six weeks, or six months, rather, as we look at this last week of Jesus' life, forgive me. I'm doing my best. Walt's doing our best. Have some grace. We don't claim to be totally inerrant in our understanding of Scripture, but we're going to try. We'll do our best. So Mark tells us in chapter 11, verse 1, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, Bethany, that's a biblical word, Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, well, why are you doing this? We'll say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Now let's pause this story for a second so that I can try to unpack why it is that this is so odd. 
All right, Mark doesn't include this in his account, but if you look at the other gospel writers, you'll find that just within the last week, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Now that was an event. Jesus stood there in front of this tomb that was holding Lazarus, who had been confirmed and known to be dead and decaying, and he stood in front of it and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. And what Jesus gave us was a wonderful illustration of the fact that the power of life and obedience comes in the command. So that as we give the gospel to lost, dead people, the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. Which is why Paul tells us in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's powerful. It's at work. And so we know that the the raising of Lazarus drew a miraculous crowd. And let's be honest. If we find out that on the other side of town there was somebody who had been in the ground for four days, and somebody stood in front of them and said, come forth, and they popped out, you might be staring at an empty stage up here because I want to go take a look. That's craziness, right? And so we knew that that drew a large crowd there in Bethany in the Bethphage area. And so uh, the word's also spreading in Jerusalem, which is just a couple of miles away. And so here where Jesus is currently staying, the, the word's passing. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And so this crowd is forming, and then the word makes its way to Jerusalem. And, and so Jerusalem is buzzing about this man named Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead. And so now it's time for Jesus to make his entrance. But it's not his first time in Jerusalem. It's not his first time in the temple. Every year there was Passover celebrated in Jerusalem. There were many other Jewish festivals. Jesus was a devout Jew. He was a good Jew. No doubt he was in these festivals. But this time is going to be different. This time when he enters Jerusalem, it's going to be unlike any other entrance. And so as we follow along in the story, we see prophecy begin to unfold. Jesus tells a couple of his followers, go on ahead into Bethphage. All right, there's a couple donkeys there. Bring them back. If somebody says, why are you taking my donkeys? Just let them know, hey, I need it. I'll give it back. Crazy, right? But Mark tells us they went. And sure enough, they found a colt, tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And, of course, some of them standing there said to them, well, what are you doing untying the colt? All right, have we ever said that following Jesus is easy? All right, imagine how weird it would be for you to go over to Waynesboro and start trying to jimmy the lock on somebody's car because I told you, just tell them I need it and then I'll give it back and it's all good. All right, so imagine Jesus' disciples, they're untying this donkey and they're hoping and they're praying, okay, please don't let me get get caught, don't let me get caught. But there's people watching them. And sure enough, even while they're probably just trying to nonchalantly untie this thing, one of them says, hey, what are you doing? And every time I study this, Shrek pops into my head. What are you doing with my donkey? <laughs> Sorry, I just I had to get that out there, all right? Um, it's the way my mind works. What are you doing with the donkey? Now, they got a few options, I suppose. I mean, I imagine they can just throw their hands in the air and start screaming gibberish and run away and hope that the people think they're insane and don't chase them for stealing this donkey? Or they can say, oh, my bad, my bad. (laughs) Sorry, I thought that was my donkey. They all look the same, my bad, and just walk away. Or there's a third option. They can think back to what Jesus said, and they can believe him, and they can obey him, and they can do what it is that he commanded them to. And they do that. Uh, (laughs) The Lord needs them. And we'll bring it back. 
<laughs> Sounds real plausible, right? If somebody came to me and said, I need your car, Jesus asked for it, I'm going to be like, uh-huh, tell Jesus to call me, here's my number, let me talk to him, and then we'll get some things going. But, but sure enough, they let these disciples go. Now, I don't know if the guy that owned this pair of donkeys, and I say pair, if you look at the other gospel writers, there were two donkeys, but Jesus is only concerned with the one. So Mark only tells us about the one. I don't know if he was a believer. I don't know if he had previously met Jesus and Jesus had arranged this beforehand. I don't know if Jesus was simply using this as a very small demonstration of his omnipotence and his omniscience. But whatever the reason, whatever the background, this guy allows these disciples to take this colt and this donkey back to Jesus. And then the the strangest thing. Verse number 7. We see they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. Now, if we were PowerPointing this thing, okay, Jesus sat on a donkey. Big deal, right? Oh, it is. It's a huge deal. Some 500 years before, when the people of God were in disarray and slowly returning from Babylonian exile, God spoke through the prophet Zechariah and said this. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous. And having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Interesting phrase there, O daughter of Jerusalem. Do you remember what Paul says to the Christians that are in Galatia? He says that the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. And so Paul is telling the Christians in the region of Galatia that Jerusalem is our mother, that we are daughters of Jerusalem. And Paul said this of everyone that had ever been born again into this new covenant. This covenant not of works, but of grace. Not of law, but of love. And so what we're seeing here is Jesus sits on this donkey and begins this trek into Jerusalem as the fulfillment of centuries-old prophecy that said that the king that was bringing salvation was coming and he was riding on a donkey. The king is here. He's on a donkey. He wasn't the first to ride a donkey. David rode a donkey. Solomon rode David's donkey, symbolizing that the kingship had passed to Solomon. Many of the judges rode on donkeys. It wasn't just that Jesus was demonstrating his humility. It's it's what kings did. Kings rode on donkeys. And the people recognized this. Check this out. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. If you dig into your Old Testament, many hundreds of years before when King Jehu was anointed king of Israel, you'd find that men removed their cloaks and put them on the ground for the king to step on. It was a symbol of their recognition that royalty was here. And while it wasn't unusual for the residents of Jerusalem to put down branches to welcome residents that were, or to welcome travelers that were coming in for Passover, these were different. These were smaller branches. One commentator said that it was like a flower petal being placed before a bride. It was that compassionate, that reverent, that majestic recognition that someone greater than me is here. And so they begin to do this. But that wasn't all they did. Mark says, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. That word Hosanna there, it's really... If I, if I recall correctly, it's found like once in the Old Testament. It was a desperate cry for God to save. 
John Piper said that originally it was kind of like the crowd that one would have if they fell off the diving board and into a pool and they were drowning. It's that desperate, save me. But then as that same phrase was taken into the New Testament and it was kind of transliterated into the Greek, the, the meaning began to morph a little bit. And so it wasn't the save me, help cry so much as the salvation is here. Piper said it's, it's what you would cry when you're in the water, but yet you see the lifeguard on his way to rescue you. It's that we need salvation and it's here. It's in front of us. And thousands upon thousands of people are screaming this. Historians believe that because it was Passover week, Jerusalem, the population would have swelled to near a quarter million people. Jesus has this crowd that's coming behind him from Bethany, and he has this crowd that's kind of meeting him from Jerusalem. And they're just putting down their cloaks, and they're putting down these branches, and they're screaming, Salvation is here. They finally see Jesus as their Messiah, as the hope of their salvation, as their rescuer. Or do they? Because by the end of the week, the same crowd that was yelling, Salvation is here, would be yelling, Crucify Him. Crucify Him. Kill Him. You thought we were fickle people. Sad, isn't it? That such a group of loyal, devout, unabashed, unashamed, publicly professing adherence to the Messiah would so quickly turn their back on everything that they had said about Him. But to be honest with you, this is, I think, a fairly accurate commentary on the state of the human heart. I think that's just who we are at birth. That's why we explained a few months ago, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Apart from regeneration, we're not going to be loyal to God. That's why Israel kept turning back on God. That's why there was a new covenant in the first place. God said, I can destroy you or I can change you. I'm not changing, but I'll change you. I'll give you a new heart and I'll cut that thing out from you that is keeping you from following me. Mark tells us, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Imagine the fanfare. Some quarter million people in the city with the name of Jesus on the lips of most. John tells us that the Pharisees that were sitting back watching this, you know the Pharisees, the religious guys, God's people, cream of the crop, the ones that hated Jesus. They're sitting back talking to each other. And John says that one of them said, you see, you're gaining nothing. The whole world is going after him. Now, obviously, the word world there can't mean world because the Pharisees were part of the world and the Pharisees weren't following Jesus. But it's a figure of speech that's so great that it might as well have been as if the entire world population was following Jesus. And so we're talking tens of thousands of people shouting Jesus' name, singing songs of praise, talking about blessed be the coming kingdom of our father David. That was a messianic promise. They knew that the Messiah was going to rule and reign from the throne of David. And they were saying, it's here, it's coming, the time is now. I mean, they truly believed it. They were on board with it. So here's an interesting question for us. Why this way? Why now? Do you remember the past three years when people were healed by Jesus or they witnessed miracles and they wanted to follow Jesus or they wanted to worship Jesus and tell everyone that the Son of God was here and, and Jesus said, nah, don't, don't tell anyone, but of course they did anyways because you can't keep your mouth shut when God works in your life. But Jesus tried for three years to try to keep a lid on things because it wasn't yet His time. But now, now it's time. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus Make them all shut up. 
This is what Jesus said. He said in Luke, he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus said, I am the king, and if these people won't acknowledge it, the rocks would, because I am worthy of it, and I deserve it, and I will have my praise. Things are definitely different this time around. It was time for the Son of God to be recognized as the Son of Man. And so here's a few reasons why that I uncovered while I was studying for this passage. Why does Jesus choose this way to enter Jerusalem? Obviously, there was the fulfillment of prophecy. It was prophesied that the king bringing salvation would come riding on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey. Jesus did that, but there are a few other reasons. Slightly speculative, but I think they're fairly solid. By coming in this way, Jesus had a safe means of entering Jerusalem. Because at this point, there was an illegal arrest warrant out for Jesus. The Pharisees wanted him gone. They wanted him dead. They wanted him out of the picture. And so if Jesus had come in discreetly, or if Jesus had come in at nighttime, there was a possibility for the Pharisees to capture him without anyone even knowing that he was around. And so Jesus made his entrance public so that the crowd would be so huge and everyone would know he was there so that the Pharisees just couldn't simply come in and take him which the Pharisees were scared of anyways. They didn't want the people turning on them. But along those lines, this type of grand entry that really proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah was kind of needed to incite the anger of the Pharisees. I mean, if you've got this troublemaker that you've spent the last three years trying to do verbal battle with and you lose every time, and he's performing miracles, and he's really upset in your system of theology, I mean, they've been boiling for three years now. But Jesus needs to make them even more mad mad enough to murder him. Think about that for a second. The greatest sin in the history of the universe was the murder of the Son of God. And yet God needed to bring that about so that Jesus could go to the cross. I mean, Jesus can't break the law and earn his death because if he broke the law, he'd be just like us and therefore unable to save us. But the perfect Son of God needed to anger these people so much that they were willing to crucify him for it. The cross was always plan A. It wasn't that God looked at the fall and scratched his head and said, Oh boy, y'all have messed up. I think I have a plan. Now Jesus was the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. The cross was always plan A. So how does that work? How is it that the God of the universe can orchestrate basically a sin, because it was a sin to murder Jesus, right? How is it that God can orchestrate that when God is neither evil nor tempts people to evil, but yet he can make this happen in a way that we're not robots and that God's not culpable for sin? How does that work? I'm glad you asked. It's a fascinating discussion. The short and simple answer is this. God knew exactly what was needed to happen so that the hearts of these men would be as evil as they were, which would ultimately lead them to murder Jesus. All God had to do was show them His Son. All Jesus had to do was reveal Himself whoops, for who He was, and that would be enough. And so was it God's plan for the cross to happen? Yeah. Did the Pharisees want to do what they did? Absolutely. That's why they're culpable and God's not. See, here's the problem. I'm going to throw a little teaser out there. We can talk about it later. But I'm just going to let you know from the get-go that free will has been nothing but problematic for lost people. I don't understand why we cling so tightly to the concept, but these people freely wanted to murder Jesus, and it was only because Jesus revealed himself to be the Son of God that he was. And so not only did Jesus enter the city safely, 
uh, not only did he rightfully reveal himself as a Messiah, not only did it serve to drive the Pharisees insane with hatred and anger, but Jesus also went to Jerusalem riding on a donkey so that Jesus could show the world just what kind of kingdom he was bringing. See, unfortunately, the public opinion at the time among the Jews was that the Messiah, when he came, he was going to usher in a social change, political change, economic change, military change. He was going to overthrow the ruling system, which at the time was the Roman Empire. He was going to throw all of that. He was going to establish his throne on the throne of David, reestablish Israel as a world-leading power, and basically rule the world with Israel. Which sounds great, right? They wanted some change. Yuck, yuck, yuck. But that wasn't the kind of kingdom that Jesus said that he was coming to bring. His kingdom wasn't of this world. And when they found that out, that's when they began to turn their backs on him. What? You, you mean you're not going to benefit me? You're not going to basically do what I want you to do so that I don't have to follow Rome anymore? You're not going to do any of these things? You're not going to change any? I don't want that kind of kingdom. I'm not going to put my neck on the line following you if you're not going to rescue us from this mess we're in. That's why Judas defected. It's why these thousands of people who were yelling, salvation has come, when they realized that the kingdom that Jesus brought wasn't of this world, they said, no, that's okay, just crucify this guy. We want nothing to do with him. But this wasn't anything new for Jesus, right? I mean, he was used to drawing crowds, feeding people, raising people from the dead, healing people. It always drew a crowd. But when Jesus began to speak and explain, no, this is is what the kingdom of God is like. Listen to me. Because it's not like you think it is. Listen, what would they do? They'd leave. In John 6, we see that even some of his own disciples, those who had been following Jesus, left. It's easy for Jesus to get a crowd when that crowd wants to be benefited by Jesus. But when you explain the cost of discipleship and just what it is that Jesus is bringing, all of a sudden the interest level isn't so high. So it's interesting that we call this the triumphal Entry. I'm going to get that word twisted on my tongue. We call it the triumphal entry. This is what one, com- one commentator said. He said, if you spoke of Jesus' triumphal entry to a Roman, they would have laughed at you in the face. For them, a triumphal entry was an honor granted to a Roman general who won a complete and decisive victory, and it killed at least 5,000 enemy soldiers. When the general returned to Rome, they had an elaborate parade. First came the treasures captured from the enemy, Then the prisoners. His armies marched by unit by unit, and finally the general rode in on a golden chariot pulled by magnificent horses. Priests burned incense in his honor, and the crowds shouted his name and praised him. The procession ended at the arena, where some of the prisoners were thrown to wild animals for the entertainment of the crowd. That was a triumphal entry. Not a Galilean peasant sitting on a few coats tossed onto the back of a donkey. Definitely not what you would imagine, but I tell you that Jesus rode into Jerusalem more victorious than any king that's ever lived. Jesus had a goal in his mind as he went into the city, and that was to go to the temple. Again, it wasn't his first trip to the temple, but I'm wondering, as he's going there, if he's thinking back to that time three years ago, Passover week, when he went into the temple. In John chapter 2, we see that the Passover Jews was at hand. This was three years before. Just to give you a little background on Jesus' relationship to this temple. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. 
And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Every time I read that passage, I think about Jesus methodically making this whip so that he can drive out the people with it. And we wonder why it was that Jesus was never a big fan with the Pharisees, right? I mean, he's had conflict with them from the get-go. And now three years later, Jesus is again approaching that magnificent structure. The temple in Jesus' day was about the size of a 15-story building, 150 foot tall, 150 foot wide. It was huge. Excuse me. Mark tells us that he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Not the most climactic of endings, huh? I mean, Jesus enters the city as a king. He's surrounded by these crowds of thousands of people that are screaming his name, that are singing praises, that are putting down their coats, that are putting branches in front of them, that are saying salvation is here. And he goes into the temple where preparations are being made for Passover. This, this festival, this observance that for thousands of years had simply pointed to the Son of God. And he walks into there where all of this hustle and bustle is happening. Things are beginning to quiet down. It's late. He looks around. And then he leaves. Why? Because he's casing the place. He's strategizing. He's making plans for what's coming the following day where as a king he takes serious action. We'll get more to that next week. But here's where I want to land this plan. Because really, we learn a lot about Jesus as we read this passage. We see the fulfillment of Old Testament history. We get a taste of the humility of the omniscience to the omnipotence of Christ. We see a little bit about the obedience of his disciples, about how when they follow what Jesus tells them to, things work out perfectly. But I think that there's also a few things that we can learn from the crowd around Jesus this morning. And that's kind of what I want to focus on. They made some pretty substantial errors. Errors that I think we still make. And Jesus' goal in life was to change their way of thinking. And I wonder this morning if he's not still needing to do the same thing for some of us. And so as our band makes their way up in just a couple of minutes, I'm not going to remind you again, so don't forget, but you can wait for just a minute or two. I'm talking slow this morning, so I don't want to have to play for like 15 minutes. Let's take a look at two fundamental errors that we see here. The first one is this. The crowd that was singing praises to Jesus, that was showing their worship to Jesus, that was by their actions following Jesus. Everything was based solely on the miracles he had performed. They heard about what he did with Lazarus. They jumped on the emotional bandwagon. They didn't follow Jesus because of what he taught or who he was. They saw him as a miracle worker and they said, yeah, I'll follow that, I'll embrace that. But to actually follow Jesus especially when he's not bringing an actual kingdom, it's a little different. It's entirely different when Jesus says, no, you need to find your total sufficiency in me. You need to let go of what it is that you're doing and embrace me. And I wonder this morning if there aren't still some of us here that haven't yet done that. That we're still relying on ourselves to be as good as we need to be. You can come on up. For God to be satisfied with who we are. Jesus said, don't rely on your works, don't rely on your possessions, don't rely on anything that you've got or anything that you've done. Rely on me. My kingdom is not of this world. What you see, it's passing. But what you don't see is eternal. And I wonder if you're here this morning and perhaps you've not yet come to the place where you're willing to say, okay, Jesus, I give up. I can't do this. 
I can't work my way to God. I can't earn my forgiveness. I can't be good enough for God to be pleased with me. But Jesus, I'm willing to trust what you did on that cross at the end of this Passion Week that was in the place for all who would believe. Are you willing to trust Jesus with everything this morning? I wonder if some of you are still trapped in that lie that you can do it on your own. It's a pretty lie, isn't it? Just do this, do this. God loves you. Problem is, Scripture says that all of the good things that we do, the things that we try to do to earn God's forgiveness, it's a filthy rag in the sight of God. We'll never be able on our own to please God sufficiently to gain His forgiveness. The only way we can have that is through this king who rode into Jerusalem knowing that he was going to his death, but knowing that he would rise again. And in that death and resurrection, he promises eternal life to all who change their mind, change their way of thinking, quit trying to rely on themselves, and just trust Christ. But the second mistake that we see is that the crowd really failed to understand the nature of the coming kingdom. They thought it was physical. They thought it was visible. They thought it was earthly. Jesus said, no, it's nothing like that. My kingdom, though the kingdom of God is all around you, it's invisible. Though you're a citizen of it, you don't yet see it. It's not like you're thinking it's going to be. It's not a kingdom of this flesh. And yet, for those of us who have trusted Christ as Savior, I think that the lie that we've fallen into is the idea that we can still take this flesh and try to make some difference in the spiritual unseen realm around us. And while it's true... Listen to me very carefully. While it's true that God glorifies Himself through the manifestation of Himself, through His people, by the power of the Holy Spirit as we're conformed to the image of Christ, that comes by focusing on the unseen. You want to see the change out here? Which is good. Don't get me wrong. But you're not going to get it by looking out here and trying to think, okay, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to... No. Jesus said, I'm the branch. Jesus said, I'm the vine. You're the branch. You want to bear fruit? Stay with me. It's going to come. And so we bear fruit. We are transformed as we set our mind on the things above, not on the things below. You want to experience victory in your flesh? Look to the cross. Dive back into that gospel message that says you are forgiven. You are clean. You are holy. You are sanctified. You are rescued. There's no condemnation. I'll never hold your sin against you. It's as far as from you as the east is from the west. And when you live in that reality then your only desire then is for Christ. That's what changes a person. But yet we seem to think that we've got to put our eyes on the things around us so that we can make an eternal difference. I'd say put your eyes on the things that are eternal and make an earthly difference. Right? But for us, it's a whole lot easier to think that we've got to bog ourselves down by a pharisaical list of do's and don'ts. We might not have 613 of them, but how many is too many? Isn't it so much better just to focus on the Son and let the power of the Holy Spirit change us? Change is coming. There is change. But it's achieved by focusing on that which is unseen. So I'll leave you with our journey marker for the week. One that I think is fitting for us, whether we're still struggling with that submission to Christ as our Savior, whether it's struggling with surrendering to Him as our means of transformation, the journey marker is this. Our King has come. Have you surrendered to His sovereign rule? If you're sitting here this morning and you're like, I've never surrendered to Christ as my Savior, but today, that's all I want to do. That's that's great. 
Walt and I would love to talk with you. We'll be standing in the back in our response time. If you have questions, if you don't know what it means to be a Christ follower, if you don't know how to actually become a Christian, which I would say if you're trusting Christ as Savior, you've got it hammered pretty good. But we'd love to talk with you. But maybe you're sitting here and you've not surrendered to Christ as your means of transformation. If you're still staring at yourself and not at Christ, where's the joy in that? Where's the life in that? Where's the victory in that? Victory is found in Christ. It's not found here. Paul said there's nothing here in this flesh but sin. He said anything good is from within, from the one who's within. However the Holy Spirit is talking to you this morning, we'd love to talk with you in the back. If you want to sit there in this time of response and just talk to God and say, God, I repent for not relying on you to try to do this thing that I think that I need to do. However it is that God's leading, how will you respond? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time that you've given us. Father, we thank you for the truly, regardless of the fickleness of the crowd, regardless of the Roman expectation of a triumphant king, we thank you, Father, for King Jesus for riding into that city on that donkey, illustrating that He is the Messiah, that He is the King of all kings, that there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And so, Father, as we begin to look at this last week of Jesus' life that culminates in the cross, in the burial, in the resurrection, Father, I pray that that would be our only place of hope that we would no longer trust ourselves to gain salvation, that we would no longer trust ourselves to, to progress in this thing that you've done for us. But Father, help us to keep our eyes on the cross, on the risen Lamb. Help us to realize that it's only through the inward dwelling of the Holy Spirit that any of us can see any kind of change outwardly. But Father, we know it's coming. Help us to not stand in the way of that. Help us to set our mind on the things above to set our mind on the things of the Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray this morning. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.